Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown. With me again is my good friend, Matthew. I'm glad you came back. I'm glad I came back as well, Mike. How was your week? Uneventful, but it is now September 2021. Yeah, you had to get a new uh, collar for Steve, you said. Yeah. What, what happened? He slipped his lead and then ran to the ferries. So he has a new collar. Yeah. Yeah. Is he happy with his new collar? Yeah. He, once I got it on him, he was fine. I had to chase him around the house to get it on him. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. I'm loving it. Oh boy. McDark Poutine. <laughs> McDark Poutine. Twenty years ago, on the morning of September 11, 2001, as the world watched in horror, 19 radical Islamist Al-Qaeda terrorists launched a group of coordinated attacks using four commuter planes as weapons, hitting several pre-planned targets in the eastern United States. Two of the airlines were flown deliberately into each of the twin towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. A third plane smashed into the U.S. Pentagon. A fourth plane, believed to have been bound for the U.S. Capitol building, crashed into a field in Pennsylvania after passengers aboard the flight fought back against the terrorists who'd taken over their plane. Among the 2,977 people who died as a direct result of the attacks, 24 of those were Canadians. As with many other countries, Canada stepped up to help in the immediate aftermath. What follows are details of the initial attacks and then some of the stories from that day and later. You are listening to Dark Poutine, episode 186, Canadians and the September 11, 2001 attacks.
just after 8.46 a.m. Eastern Time, American Airlines Flight 11, due to be heading west out of Boston, crashed into the north face of the North Tower, WTC-1, of the World Trade Center in New York City with a massive bang. It created a spectacular fireball in the almost cloudless late summer sky. When the plane hit the building, it was traveling at almost 750 kilometers per hour and had been carrying 38,000 liters of fuel for the cross-country trip. All 92 people aboard the Boeing 767, 11 crew, and 81 passengers, five of whom were hijackers, were killed. Inside the building, roughly 8,000 people, the ones who were able, began to evacuate, but another 1,402 were trapped or killed above the impact of the plane that spanned from the 93rd to the 99th floor of the 110-story skyscraper. The events of the day unfolded live and in color, covered heavily by television news crews, and New Yorkers craned their necks trying to get a good look at the fire, all speculating what was going on. Many of the people on the streets of New York below the blast had no idea what had happened. Some thought that it must be some terrible accident. It wasn't the first time a plane had hit a building in the city. On July 28, 1945, at 9.40 a.m., a USAF B-25 Mitchell bomber smashed into the Empire State Building in dense fog. The crash killed the three crewmen on the plane as well as another 11 people in the building and caused damage estimated around $20 million in today's economy. But the events of September 11, 2001 had only just begun. Emergency crews, police, fire and ambulance responded to WTC-1 to ensure as many people as possible got out safely and went to help the others who couldn't get out under their own steam or were trapped. Those who were watching that day, either from the safety of their homes via television broadcast or as it happened in the city, will never forget the images of the flames and black smoke billowing out of the building, one of the two tallest on the city's famous skyline. Everyone was shocked and horrified when 17 minutes after the first crash, at 9.03 a.m., a second plane, United Airlines Flight 175, also bound for Los Angeles and loaded with fuel for that cross-country journey, smashed diagonally into the south face of the South Tower, WTC2, of the World Trade Center, between the 77th and 85th floors. It created another massive fireball and sent debris raining down onto the buildings and streets below. The rumors of a coordinated terrorist attack began to rumble across the airwaves and throughout the public watching in horror as the events unfolded. Officials had been made aware of something odd going on more than a half hour before Flight 11 flew into WTC-1. Authorities believe that the hijacking of Flight 11 began at 8.14 a.m., around 15 minutes after takeoff. Two flight attendants in the coach cabin, Betty Ong and Madeline Amy Sweeney, made phone calls reporting the hijacking. About five minutes after the attack started, Betty Ong made her first phone call using an AT&T airphone to report an emergency aboard the flight. She said, quote, The cockpit is not answering. Somebody stabbed in business class. I think there's mace. That we can't breathe. I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. End quote. She then reported the stabbings of two flight attendants. At 8.24 a.m., a recording was made by air traffic control of two transmissions by one of the attackers, the one flying the plane. He keyed the mic thinking he was speaking to the passengers of Flight 11. 
The hijacker intended to warn the passengers to stay calm lest they jeopardize the plane and themselves. You can hear an air traffic controller confused about the interaction. At the beginning of the first transmission, the hijacker says the infamous words, We have some planes. Here's the recording. Is that American 11 trying to call? Buddy. We have some planes. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We're heading to the airport. And uh, who's trying to call me here? American 11, are you trying to call? Nobody moves. Everything is okay. If you try to make any moves, you'll enjoy yourself and the airplane. Let's stay quiet. Flight attendant Betty Ong continued reporting on the goings-on aboard Flight 11 until just before the crash, telling horrified American Airlines employees about erratic flying, terrified passengers, and a hijacker at the helm. Betty's final words into the phone before the call ended were, Oh my God, we are way too low. End quote. It was two passengers and some flight attendants, again via air phones on United Airlines Flight 175, who kept those on the ground abreast of what was going on aboard that plane. One of the passengers, Peter Hansen, made two phone calls to his dad, Lee. In the first call, he told of the hijacking, but the second one, made three minutes before Flight 175 hit the South Tower, highlighted the harrowing events occurring high above. Peter told his father about what had gone on and how crazily the hijackers were flying. In his last few words to his dad, Peter said, I think we are going down. I think they intended to go to Chicago or someplace and fly into a building. Don't worry, Dad. If it happens, it will be very fast. My God, my God. End quote. American Airlines 77, a Los Angeles-bound flight that recently had taken off from Dulles International in Washington, D.C., was violently hijacked between 8.50 and 8.54 a.m., Air traffic controllers noticed the flight make an unexpected wild deviation from its projected course. Several passengers and at least one flight attendant used airphones to call and report the hijacking. Unsure of the intention of the unknown hijackers, at 9.34 a.m., the Secret Service was notified by air traffic control that the flight was heading back toward Washington and possibly the White House, and it was descending rapidly. At 9.37 a.m., American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon, traveling at over 850 kilometers per hour. All on board, six flight crew and 58 passengers, including five hijackers, were killed. Another 125 people on the ground inside the Pentagon also lost their lives. 92 on the first floor, 31 on the second, and two on the third. Omar Campo, a witness, was on the other side of the road. He told the Guardian newspaper, quote, I was cutting the grass and it came in screaming over my head. I felt the impact. The whole ground shook and the whole area was full of fire. I could never imagine I would see anything like that here, end quote. The final flight hijack that day was United Airlines Flight 93. It had left Newark Airport in New Jersey at 8.42 a.m. after a short delay on the ground. At 9.02 a.m., a minute before Flight 175 slammed into WTC-2, Flight 93 reached its cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. Around that time, American and United Airlines and the FAA were realizing that there had been multiple planes hijacked, and they began warning other flights, including the pilots on Flight 93. 
Flight 93 was unusually below capacity that day with only 37 passengers aboard and a full complement of seven crew members. The four hijackers, all who had been seated in first class, attacked at 9.28, 46 minutes after takeoff. It's not clear why there was a delay in the hijacking as compared to the other flights, all of which were taken over within 30 minutes of takeoff. It is also not clear why there were only four hijackers on this flight as opposed to the five who had been on all the others. However, investigators later learned that another man apparently connected to the 19 hijackers had been refused entry into the United States only weeks before the attacks. It is presumed he would have been the 20th overall and the 5th of the team of hijackers on Flight 93. Via air phones, at least 10 passengers and two crew members made phone calls to families and authorities telling them about the hijacking aboard Flight 93. The four men had edged weapons and claimed to have a bomb. While attempting to call his wife, passenger Todd Beamer was routed to a GTE operator named Lisa Jefferson. Beamer told Lisa that there was a plan involving several passengers to retake control of the plane. Beamer's last words were overheard by Lisa before the call went dead, presumably spoken to some of his colleagues in the passenger revolt against the terrorists. They were, Are you ready? Okay, let's roll. The revolt began at 9.57 and at 10.03, Flight 93 crashed into a field near Indian Lake and Shanksville, Pennsylvania at more than 906 kilometers per hour. According to the coroner, everyone on board died instantly upon impact from the massive G-forces causing blunt force trauma. Although the actions of the passengers' revolt resulted in their own deaths, they may have, al- they may have also prevented an untold number of further fatalities. At 9.59 a.m., four minutes before Flight 93 hit the ground, the South Tower of the World Trade Center, the second building hit, collapsed. At 10.28, the North Tower, that had been burning for less than two hours, also fell. The whole world went into crisis management mode, including Canada. Members of the Canadian Armed Forces were participating in military exercises when Flight 11 smashed into the North Tower. From a Global News article, quote, NORAD was in the middle of a training exercise on September 11, 2001, said Major General Alain Perrant, commander of 1 Canada Air Division and Canadian NORAD region. At the time, he was the director of the Canadian Air Operations Centre in Winnipeg, in charge of maintaining a clear picture of aerospace defence in Canada and coordinating Air Force assets across the country. The attack occurred in the middle of the exercise. Perrant saw the strike on a big screen as he walked into the operations center that morning. He didn't believe what he saw. It was so surreal and unreal that I didn't believe it was actually happening. I thought it was part of an exercise scenario that they had done. That they had gone all out with some sort of Hollywood production, he said. But by the time the second plane struck, it was clear that this was not part of an exercise. So then I had goosebumps and we said, this is going to be very serious and we have to change the mindset from exercise mode to reality, he said. An hour after the attacks began, the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, ordered all civilian aircraft to land. The United States National Airspace System was officially shut down at 11.06 a.m. The attacks appeared to be over for the time being, but there was no way of knowing whether more were on the way. At the time, there were around 500 planes in the air en route to various locations in the United States. With the U.S. airspace closed, 
Those planes had to go somewhere. The pilots flying planes with enough fuel were advised to return to the airports of origin all over the globe. At least 225 of those flights were diverted to Canada. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca, fearing the attacks may not be over and worried that other planes could be turned into destructive missiles, Transport Canada instructed Nav Canada, the agency that handles air traffic control, not to redirect planes to large urban areas such as Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal. Airports situated outside the country's major cities were to bear the brunt of all the unexpected diversions. And we'll take a break right here. And we're back. Uh, What are your thoughts on this story so far, Matthew? Uh, This is the day that the world truly changed for the worse. Yeah. And you know me, I don't make this not, I don't do grand statements like this, Mm -hmm. but it did. Yeah. We're we're still feeling it. Yeah. We'll get into why we feel that way later on. Yeah. Early on that day, the Canadian forces began what was referred to as Operation Support, taking several steps to increase emergency preparedness. Additional CF-18 fighters were assigned to NORAD. The Disaster Assistance Response Team DART was placed on standby at 8 Wing Trenton, Ontario. Also, HMC ships Preserver, Iroquois, and Ville de Quebec were put in a higher state of readiness in case they were required to go to a U.S. port to provide humanitarian assistance. The largest part of the operation was assisting in the diversion of all those flights with some 33,000 passengers aboard and ensuring accommodations for them while they became unanticipated guests of the Canadian communities who hosted them. The operation dealing solely with the diversion of the planes was called Operation Yellow Ribbon, during which, according to NAV Canada, 238 aircraft were diverted to 17 different airports across the country. On the southeastern coast, Halifax International Airport received the largest number of flights, 47 planes carrying more than 7,000 passengers. While in the west, Vancouver International Airport received the highest number of passengers, 34 planes carrying 8,500 people. But the airport and community most famously overwhelmed was Gander International in Newfoundland, the easternmost North American airport. Gander, a town of only 10,000 people, received 37 planes diverted there and 6,700 passengers that day. In 1985, before flying to London on my way to France, Our flight landed in Gander to refuel before the Atlantic crossing. I recall Gander being remote, foggy, and tiny, not even close to the more urban centers that many of the diverted flights were destined for in the United States. The planes were not immediately unloaded upon arrival. Authorities were unsure whether there were bombs aboard the planes, and there were also concerns that there may be more terrorists among the passengers. In Gander, it fell to the RCMP to ensure the safety of the confused passengers as the police ensured it was okay to unload people. That took time. Corporal Mike Hall was the team lead at the RCMP detachment in Gander. In an article published recently on the RCMP's website, Hall recalled some of what went on that day. From the moment it all started, I knew the most important thing was to keep people calm, in the airport and on the plane, says Hall. My initial thoughts were also to keep them happy until they could fly away, says Hall, who didn't think that moment was days off. 
smartphones were a few years away, and cell phone service was spotty on the tarmac. To keep people calm, the police kept the details of the day's events to a minimum, but eventually the word of a large terrorist attack in the United States involving planes made its way to the grounded airliners. Once the planes were declared safe, the next order of business was disembarking and housing. With Gander's population essentially doubled instantly, there was not enough room at local hotels to house everyone. From the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca, quote, School bus drivers who were on strike left their picket lines in order to provide transportation to area schools and halls. Medical prescriptions were filled by pharmacies at no cost, and people opened their homes to passengers in need of a coffee or a shower. Alan Flood of Bristol, England, who was stranded with his wife Barbara, summed up the feelings of hundreds of passengers when he said, quote, We were strangers. They didn't know what we were like. They took us into their homes, made sure we wanted for nothing, treated us as part of the family. Gander truly stepped up. From a Forbes magazine article later, quote, When Americans Lisa Zale and business associate Sarah Wood needed supplies, they went to a Canadian Tire, a chain retail store that sells a variety of goods. When they rolled their well-packed cart to the front, prepared to pay, the cashier asked them if they were from one of the planes. When Zale and Wood nodded, the cashier announced that they could just take the items. Anything the stranded passengers needed, the store was happy to provide. There were hundreds of stories like this over the next week from all over Canada as the stranded passengers were treated like family by people they'd never met before. Many of the passengers who required housing have since become close friends with their hosts and return regularly to visit. On the 10th anniversary of the attacks in 2011, U.S. President Barack Obama said Americans, quote, remember with gratitude and affection how the people of Canada offered us comfort and friendship and extraordinary assistance that day and in the following days by opening their airports, homes, and hearts to us, end quote. According to a Wikipedia article on the casualties from the September 11, 2001 attacks, a total of 2,751 victims were confirmed to have died in the initial attacks. In 2007, the New York City Medical Examiner's Office began to add people who died of illnesses caused by exposure to dust from the site to the official death toll. The first such victim was a woman, a civil rights lawyer, who had died from a chronic lung infection in February of 2002. In September 2009, the office added a man who died in October 2008 and in 2011, a male accountant who had died in 2010 in December. This raises the number of victims at the World Trade Center to 2,753 and the overall 9-11 death toll to 2,996. The dead included people on the planes and in the buildings, but first responders in New York were also hit hard. Of the victims killed in the September 11th attack, 412 were emergency workers in New York City who responded to the World Trade Center. This included 343 firefighters, including a chaplain, and two paramedics of the New York City Fire Department, FDNY. 37 police officers of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey Police Department, PAPD. 23 police officers of the New York City Police Department, NYPD. And eight emergency medical technicians and paramedics from private emergency medical services. Three New York State Court officers and one patrolman from New York Fire Patrol. Over 90 countries lost citizens, including 24 Canadians. 
According to a 2009 Global News article, the Canadians who died in the attacks on September 11th were Michael Arksinski, 45, Employer, Aon Corporation, Senior Vice President, Hometown, Vancouver, B.C. He worked in the South Tower of the World Trade Center. He was married to a woman from Montreal named Lori. The couple had three children. She was pregnant on 9-11. He also had three daughters from a previous marriage. Garnet Ace Bailey, 53, employer, NHL's Los Angeles Kings, director of pro scouting, hometown Lloydminster, Saskatchewan. He was on United Airlines Flight 175 when it crashed into the World Trade Center South Tower. He played for the NHL for 11 seasons and retired with seven Stanley Cup rings. He was survived by his wife, Catherine, and a son. David Barkway, 34, employer, BMO Nesbitt Burns in Toronto, managing director, his hometown, Cornwall, Ontario. He was at a meeting in the Cantor Fitzgerald office in the North Tower of the World Trade Center. When the plane struck, he sent an electronic message to his colleagues at home, We need help. This is not a joke. An avid golfer, Barkway died just three days after his birthday. He and his wife Cindy had a son. She was pregnant at the time of the attack. Ken Besnicki, 48, employer BEA Systems in Toronto. He was attending a company meeting in the North Tower. He was last heard from at 8.55 a.m. when he called his mother from a cell phone. He was married to an Air Canada flight attendant named Maureen and was stepfather to her daughter Erica. Besnicki loved golf, skiing, snowboarding, and riding his Harley-Davidson motorcycle. Joseph Collison, 50, employer, Kidder Peabody and Company, mailroom. He was at work in the North Tower of the Trade Center when the plane struck. He was single and was hoping to adopt a young boy who he had been taken care of. Collison was buried in Mississauga, Ontario. Cynthia Connolly, 40, Aon Corporation. She worked in the South Tower of the, the World Trade Center. She and her husband, Donald Poissant, lived in New Jersey with a dog and cat. Aaron Dack, 39, employer, Incompi's senior executive. Dack was attending a conference in the North Tower of the World Trade Center when the first plane hit. He was born in England but moved to Canada with his parents in 1970. He and his wife, Abigail Carter, lived in New Jersey and had a son and daughter. Christine Egan, 55, employer, Health Canada, epidemiologist. Egan was from Winnipeg and was visiting her brother's office in the South Tower of the World Trade Center. She was raised in England but moved to London, Ontario. She taught at the University of Manitoba. Michael Egan, 51, Aon Corporation. He was raised in England but moved to Canada in 1970. He moved to New York in 1991. He was married to a woman named Anna and had two sons. His sister Christine was the one visiting him at the time of the attack. Both siblings were killed. Albert Elmery, 30, employer Cantor Fitzgerald, computer support. He was a religious man who met his wife Irene on a trip to the Middle East. Meredith Ewart, 29, Aon Corporation, hometown Montreal. She lived with her husband, Peter Feidelberg, in New Jersey. Both of them worked in the South Tower of the World Trade Center and died in the attack. Peter Feidelberg, 34, Aon Corporation, hometown Montreal. He lived with his wife, Meredith Ewart, in New Jersey. Both of them worked in the South Tower of the World Trade Center and died in the attack. He was athletic and enjoyed basketball and scuba diving, among other pursuits. Alexander Filipov, 70, 
electrical engineer, hometown Regina, Saskatchewan. He was supposed to take a Delta flight to Los Angeles, but switched to American Airlines Flight 11 at the last minute. He wanted to get home earlier for his wedding anniversary. He was on the plane when it hit the World Trade Center. He lived in Concord, Massachusetts with his wife, Loretta. The couple had three sons. He was an energetic senior who tried bungee jumping when he was 60. Ralph Gerhardt, 34, employer Cantor Fitzgerald. After the plane hit the World Trade Center, he left a voice message for his parents saying he was going to look for his girlfriend. She also died in the attack. Stuart Lee, 30, employer Data Synapse, vice president of Integrated Services, hometown Vancouver. Lee, who was married to a woman named Lynn, was attending a conference in the World Trade Center. Mark Ludvigson, 32, employer Keefe, Briette, and Woods, bond broker. Hometown Rothsay, New Brunswick. Ludvigson, who moved to the U.S. with his family when he was a kid, was working in the South Tower of the World Trade Center. He lived in Manhattan with his wife, Maureen. Bernard Mascarenhas, 54, employer Marsh Canada, chief information officer, hometown Newmarket, Ontario. Bernard was in the North Tower of the World Trade Center on a business trip. He had a wife, Raynette, as well as a son and daughter. Colin MacArthur, 52, Aon Corp., Deputy Managing Director, Toronto. He was born in Scotland but moved to Toronto in 1977. He moved to Montreal nine years later. He was a golf enthusiast. He was married to a woman named Brenda. Michael Pelletier, Cantor Fitzgerald, commodities broker. He called his wife and told her he was trapped in the tower and told her he loved her. He had a three-year-old daughter and a one-year-old son. Donald Robson, 52, Cantor Fitzgerald, partner and bondbroker. Hometown Toronto. Robson had been living in the United States for 20 years. He had been planning 24th wedding anniversary celebrations with his wife, Kathy, and had two sons, Jeff and Scott. Rafino Roy Santos, 37. Employer, Guy Carpenter, computer consultant. Native of Manila, former British Columbia resident. Santos moved to New York in the late 1990s. He was planning on leaving his job on the 94th floor of the World Trade Center one week after the attacks for a job with Accenture. Vladimir Tomasevic, 36. Optus eBusiness Solutions, Vice President of Software Development, native of Yugoslavia, moved to Toronto in 1994. He was on his first visit to New York and was attending a financial conference on the 106th floor of the World Trade Center's North Tower. He lived in Toronto with his wife, Tanya. Chantal Shanti Vincelli, 38, employer Data Synapse, Inc., marketing assistant, former Montreal resident. Vincelli moved to New York in the late 1990s and lived in Harlem. She was on the 106th floor of the North Tower, setting up a kiosk for a trade show. She dreamed of being a talk show host. Debbie Williams, 35, Aon Corp., hometown Montreal. Williams moved to Hoboken, New Jersey with her husband Darren after being transferred by her employer. She gave birth to their only child six months after settling in Hoboken. Over the past 20 years, for better or for worse, the 21st century's Pearl Harbor, what we now refer to as simply 9-11, was a day that changed the way we do a lot of things. Canada's reactions included involvement in the war in Afghanistan, controversially so. That began in November of 2001, in direct response to the events of September 11th. According to publicsafety.gc.ca, quote, 
Since 2001, the government of Canada has taken decisive action to address the evolving threat of terrorism both within and beyond Canadian borders. Through legislative changes, targeting programming, criminal investigations and other initiatives. For example, we created the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority, the federal crown corporation responsible for screening passengers and baggage. We also strengthened aviation, marine and rail security in Canada, including through more rigorous screening for port and airport employees, enhancements to technology and improved security procedures. We broadened the level of information sharing among the agencies involved in detecting terrorist financing. For example, we increased the ability of Canada Revenue Agency to provide designated charity information to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Centre of Canada to facilitate the investigation of terrorism and to prevent organizations with ties to terrorism from operating as registered charities. We created the Canada Border Services Agency to provide integrated border services that support national security and public safety priorities and facilitate the free flow of persons and goods. The agency increased the use of advanced information on goods and travelers heading to Canada and enhanced information sharing and cooperation with national and international partners, automated risk assessment tools, trusted travelers and trader programs and initiated the gradual arming of 5,685 frontline CBSA officers. We also created Canada Command, an operational headquarters that has improved the coordination of military resources available for domestic safety, security, and defense both in Canada and on the continent. We introduced and brought into law the controversial Anti-Terrorism Act, which takes aim at terrorist and terrorist groups, and protects the safety, security, and fundamental rights of Canadians. As a result of a number of successful national security criminal investigations, 26 people have been charged under the Anti-Terrorism Act, and 14 have been convicted, including members of the Toronto 18. We created a mechanism to publicly identify groups or individuals who were associated with terrorism, and listed 44 such groups as terrorist entities under the criminal code. The listing process is an important means to protect national security and counter the financing of terrorist groups and their activities worldwide. Many of us who are around and old enough to remember 9-11 have specific memories of that day. After reading a few articles on memory, I've begun second-guessing my recollections of what I saw. Memory is funny and fuzzy and surprisingly unreliable. According to an article in Time magazine in 2015, titled Memory, September 11th, Why Our Memory May Change, citing a study in the Journal of Experimental Psychology by William Hurst, Ph.D., a professor of psychology at the New School for Social Research, told Time journalist Brian Williams that as many as 40% of people do not accurately recall their 9-11 experiences. Human memory is not like a computer. Human memory is extremely fallible. The article continues, The tendency to misremember is likely the result of a time splice error, Hurst explains. In other words, people remembered facts about their 9-11 experience, but they forgot how the pieces fit together. In the survey, one man remembered being on the street when he heard the news of the attack, but was actually in his office. The man probably spent time in both places at some point that day, but his memory of the truth blurred with time. You begin to weave a very coherent story, says Hearst, and when you have a structured, coherent story, 
it's retained for a very long period of time. So what do you remember about that day, Matthew? Where were you? Were you living in London at the time? Yeah. So I was, I was in London um, and, you know, it was different in London. 9-11 wasn't something that uh, we woke up to like so many people in North America. Yeah. It was mid after, it was the middle of the afternoon. Yeah. I That morning I'd just gotten off an airplane um, from Detroit mm-hmm. to London. I'm not sure why I was in Detroit. I can't remember why. Got home, unpacked some bags, tidied up because my partner at the time and his mother were flying back from Istanbul to London that day as well. Okay. So both me and my partner were on flights that day, which was yeah. kind of weird. I went up for a walk to get fresh air. On my way back, I went past a cafe that had a window open. A friend of mine yelled out and said, hey, went over and talked to him. He said, something's gone on at the World Trade Center. He's South African, but he'd lived in New York for a while. And he said, something's happened at the World Trade Center in New York. I think a bomb or something. Mm-hmm. And I could see like smoke in, because there's a TV in the cafe. Sure. So you saw the tower smoking. Yeah. And... So I walked home past the Colhern pub, which we'll eventually mention in another episode. Okay. <laughs> um, got home and then watched the rest of it unfold on TV. Wow. Watched the towers sort of in real time collapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's something, I have to say, there's something, if you weren't born then. Yeah. In the middle of it all, like it, it's like everyone's seen this footage a million times. Yeah. But sitting there watching it, not knowing what's going on, not, not knowing, it feels old now, right? Mm-hmm. But not expecting anything and not knowing what's going to happen and not gonna, not knowing what's going to happen next. Yeah. It was really frightening. Um, so I sat there and called my partner at the time, like they're on an airplane. I was worried. Mm hmm. They finally, when they landed, called me back. I said, there's been a terrorist attack because nobody told them anything, obviously, on the flight or in the airport. They came home. To this day, I remember his mother sort of standing in front of our sofa. Yeah. And she, like, her mouth open and seeing, like, the towers both burning. Yeah. And I was like, they're gone, they're gone. And she looked at me and she goes, what do you mean they're gone? And then they cut to the footage of the towers collapsing. And she just, to this day, I remember her just sort of, like, collapsing like onto the couch oh man and then i was stuck with my mother-in-law for two weeks because she couldn't get out of london right <laughs> which is a minor issue compared to everything else that happened <laughs> that, yeah but uh, still we, yeah but it was you it, know it's it, an impact it was an impact and um yeah so it was it was uh it was a surreal day so i was i was bashing it around like um trying to figure out uh, whether I, what I remember and what I, the stories that I've told over the years are actually what happened. Right. And luckily I know exactly where I was when things were going on. For example, I had to catch the train to downtown Vancouver at 6.50 in the morning. And, um, so both towers had already been struck by Mm -hmm. planes by that time. Carol and I, uh, were awake probably uh, a little bit before that. She were, wanted. Were you, were you here in Vancouver? We were living in Maple Ridge, and Carol wanted me to record Oprah for her that day on our uh, PVR. Right. So I was setting up the P. I turned on the TV to set up the PVR, and I see. I believe it was only one tower mm. on fire at the time. We had to get up, get ready, go to work. The first thing we did essentially was set up this PVR before showers and all that kind of stuff. 
I believe I only saw one tower mm. on fire when I got up and set up the PVR. Mm. What I thought I was watching first was some weird Hollywood thing. Right. I really did. I really thought I was watching some reenactment or some uh, disaster possibility show right. or something like that, but it was on CNN. Right. You know, and people were talking about this has happened, this has just happened. But I don't recall two towers being on fire. I only recall one. Mm. So probably in the time it took us to get ready and get into our car, drive to the train station, wait for the train, is when the second tower had been hit by a plane. Right. So on our way on the train, the train leaves at 6.50. At 7 o'clock, so 10 minutes after our train left the station, Tower 2 fell. Right. And 7.38, which was two minutes before the train gets into the station, Tower 1 fell. Mm. So I was on the train yeah. when in real time the yeah, towers no. were falling. I remember getting onto the bus, which was the number 50 that took me up Burrard Street mm -hmm. to where I was working. Uh, I was working at Bodog, which was a sports betting company. The office was at the foot of the Burrard Street Bridge on the north side. As I get onto the bus, I notice this young guy and he's just like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And I said, why can't you believe? Like, what's wrong? He says, both towers are down. And I said, what are you talking You're about? Like, what towers? What are you talking about? No, well, I knew. Oh, okay. Like, I knew that there was... The one, okay. The one. Okay. And I said to him, I said... No, there was only one hit. And he said, no, both towers have been hit by planes and are down. And I said, what do you mean? He says, they fell. And I went off on this guy. <laughs> Jesus. I didn't know. Right. You know, I, I said, that's a horrible thing to lie about. Wow. Because I was so, like, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. There was no cell phone on the train. Right. People didn't know what yeah. had happened. Yeah. And I got into the office at Bodog there and everybody was standing around the TVs. There were two TVs, one in the CEO's office and one in the, uh, in the boardroom. And everybody was either around the one in the boardroom and the, or the one in Calvin's office. And just a look of shock in everyone's face. And I, I said, somebody told me that like both towers have fallen. And they said, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. And it was like, uh, whoa, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I just remember being obsessed with the news after that, completely obsessed to the point of uh, traumatizing myself, having yeah. horrible nightmares and those kind of things. And I did some research. Uh, apparently, that is a real thing. Mm -hmm. You can have what's called vicarious trauma mm -hmm. by watching traumatic events on the news. Yeah. So I cannot watch the footage. It was hard enough for me to, to read about this. I wanted to do it because I wanted to give um, the Canadians in this story who were killed in the attacks, I wanted to give them a bit of a memorial because yeah. we had, we lost Canadians yeah. in the story. But I also wanted to point out the, the good things, you know, like we had, <laughs> we had, uh, you know, these 30,000 people coming to Canada mm. with nowhere to go. And, you know, some of them were housed in places like hotels and that kind of thing. But 
a few, a number, a large number of them were housed in regular Canadians' homes. They took in these strangers and some of them for a week, you know, because if you recall, like you were stuck with your (laughs) mother-in-law for a week, but these, these folks were strangers in a strange land. I mean, Gander, Newfoundland is not exactly a metropolis, you know, like, uh, somebody who is, uh, a San Franciscan or, uh, New Yorker or Chicagoan is going to look at Gander, Newfoundland and said, say, uh, am I on the moon? Yeah. It's a, it's a small town on the rock. 10,000 people. It's like Bridgewater. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it is a very, very tiny place. And the fact that these people essentially with their population doubled, took in others, just floors me. And it, that makes me proud of our reaction to it. Yeah. That is a real Canadian reaction to, I don't know. I, I think a lot of other countries, a lot of people in a lot of other countries would do the same thing. I would hope. Yeah. I can remember when Hurricane Katrina hit. Mm-hmm. People who were on Airbnb were putting out their houses for a dollar. Yeah. You know, just to... Take like care. When something you know. this big happens, I think yeah, the best can come out of people. Yeah, and it is that kind of that kind of event. So, uh, you obviously chose not to talk much through this episode. Um, I, I've just I've seen I've seen it so many times, mm-hmm. and yeah, you have to remember I I was at a much closer experience four years later with 7-7 in London, with the London bombings. Mm-hmm. Um, that was way closer to home. Um, I'd got, I'd just gotten into my office from Edgeware Station where one of the trains blew up. Yeah. So 15 minutes later, I could have been on one. Right. And someday we'll tell that story. Um, but there was, like, Justin and I were trying to find a way out of central London. I was on the phone with him, get off the bus. They're blowing up buses now. So we're, like, in the middle of it. So that was quite an experience. But, you know, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, how do I put it? It was so big. Mm-hmm. And I've I obsessed and watched it so many times. Yeah. That... Uh-huh. And it was just so sad that, yeah, I just didn't have much to say anymore. I remember... I feel like I've said everything I can say in some way. Yeah. yeah. I remember watching the internet, like, refreshing the page over and over and mm. over again on CNN to see something new, yeah. to get new information. And I went through my blogs. I used to scan my lunch Mike Brown's mikebrown.com slash lunch. I used to scan it. <laughs> some of the, uh, some of my old scans aren't there anymore, but there's a few. Um, uh, so I went back to archive.org to see what I said on September 11, 2001. And all I wrote was the date and WTC tragedy and said, lunch is preempted today out of respect for the victims of the current events in New York City and across North America back tomorrow. I was so sad. Yeah. I was so, so sad. Yeah. And on my other blog, moosh.org, and Moosh was one of our, what, Moosh was our dog. Carol and I, at the time, that was our dog, so we had moosh.org. But I wrote, what a terrible day, I'll never forget this one. Yeah. And usually I was a little more verbose. Yeah. But. You know, and I, have you had, were you ever in the World Trade Center? I was never, I had never been to New York. So I used to have a, um, 
an apartment down on, in Soho on Spring and Sullivan. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd been to the World Trade Center a couple of times. I had, I had lots of friends in New York, actually. That's the one thing I was really worried about was, mm-hmm. um, this is before that sort of whole Facebook marked safe stuff. Right, yeah. Like, I've, I have a lot of friends in Manhattan, right? Mm-hmm. And I was worried about them. Yeah. You know? So it was a big tragedy, but I was after the initial, oh my God, then I was like, oh my God, are Leah and Eben okay? Are, you know, and I was going through the list of the, like, probably a hundred people that live in Manhattan at the mm-hmm. time, right? Yeah. One of the, the VPs at Bodog, his brother worked in building number five mm-hmm. in the World Trade Center and just happened that he wasn't at work that day. Yeah. Um, I don't know if anybody died in building five, but. A, a lot of it was damaged. It had to be repaired extensively afterward. But yeah. um, I didn't know people in New York personally, but um, it, this, that, what happened struck me so much. I was really, and I, looking back, I was really terrified. Yeah. I was actually terrified. And so I guess that's what my next question is going to be. If terror was the goal of these terrorists, did they achieve their goal? Um, yeah. Did they win? <laughs> Are you sure you want my answer here? Uh, yeah, because it's probably a similar one to the one I have. Okay, on the geopolitical stage, uh, they had a resounding victory. Yeah. It didn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. I think <laughs> Bin Laden, Cheney, Rumsfeld... Yep. Was this symbiotic relationship. Yeah, like a, a it's it's like a, a sort of a triangle of terror of of horror. Well, I bet that Bin Laden loved Cheney and Rumsfeld and the O'Connor response, which helped whip up more resentment in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. It and that and what they did ended trust amongst Americans' traditional allies in the long run. Mm-hmm. It it also helped further divide the American people. The Americans, you know. There was a division, you know, on September the 10th. Yeah. But September 11th, I think these last 20 years, that divide has been partially due to this. Because this, can I stop you just for a yeah. sec? This action taken by those 19 people uh, was planned by people other than them. It wasn't just like they are 19 guys who decided to do something. It was a lot larger. The fact that it took place, look at what was hit. The Pentagon mm-hmm. and the twin towers of the World Trade Center, which is kind of the center of economics mm-hmm. in the world. All of this was very tactical. It was a real tactical um, move by these people to do, to upset mm. our, the way we live. Well, and they did that. Well, they did because I think back to Cheney Rumsfeld, right? Mm-hmm. So Bin Laden probably, they actually, in my opinion, played into his hands in a lot of ways. And at the same time, I bet Cheney and Rumsfeld loved Bin Laden's attack in a weird way because it gave them a reason to implement their neocon agenda. To the, like the massive expansion of authoritarian state, surveillance mm-hmm. state, the demonization of Muslims in America, pouring money into the military industrial conflict. Dick Cheney and, made a lot of money. And oil money, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So, so they leveraged 9-11 
to fake the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which had nothing to do. You'll notice 15 of those terrorists were from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. America didn't go into Saudi because they're in the pockets with the oil. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. It's no, just this fact. this is a real fact. Right? So, so this... Masawi, this, one of the other, one of the supposed planners of this, mm. also admitted under oath at his trial in 2015 that the Saudi royal family, members of the Saudi royal family were involved in the planning and finance of 9-11. Wouldn't be surprised. And then they pulled Tony Blair in the UK into it with the fake Iraq war, mm -hmm. which just completely crumbled that relationship with America. Mm -hmm. So then you have, you know, before that was going into Afghanistan to, essentially that was to, to bomb out the foxholes of the training grounds, but they ended up going off mission and they've been there for, they'd been there for the past 20, 20 years. 20 years. And so in this past two weeks, we've seen the surrender of Afghanistan to the Taliban, which was a unilateral withdrawal uh, against the wishes of many of the allies. Mm -hmm. I mean, America is, 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 you know, before September the 11th, you know, the, the European relationship, yeah, there was always some issues, but the relationship between the Europe and America, Canada and America was very strong. Since then, it's gotten weaker and weaker and weaker. People do not trust the American government anymore. The allies no longer trust them. Well, Canada didn't really we want to be involved in the Iraq war Well, at we all. didn't, but we went yeah. to Afghanistan. But the trust is yeah. gone, right? And then, you know, other terrorists were emboldened. I'd talk about 7-7, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Two trillion dollars were spent in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. Mm -hmm. And then COVID hits and they don't, they don't even have fucking masks for people yeah. because they've spent the money. You know, Bush. <laughs> we, yeah. We don't want to get too Obama, far. Obama, yeah. Trump, Trump partially elected because of anti-Islamic uh, uh, propaganda. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, the stooge to the Russians. So did they succeed? Yeah. But in a lot of ways, I think the West was hoisted on its own petard, as they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, you asked. <laughs> yeah, no, I asked. Um, the reaction that came after 9-11 was the reaction that they wanted. Yeah. This was what they wanted to happen. Yeah. They want us to be more afraid. They want us to have metal detectors everywhere. They want us to have more strict laws. They want yeah. our way of and, life and, to be and, threatened. And don't get me wrong, right? Like, I'm, like we should have gone in... To Afghanistan, probably at that time, to to search out the trainers, to find and all that, but all and then the, all this other added stuff mm -hmm. for money and for oil and for politics uh, was couched under nine eleven. Mm -hmm. um, that just made it all so much worse. And and you know we're 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 a lot less free than we used to be. Yeah, you know a lot of our listeners don't know that because they're younger, but I I, I can see the difference. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. I I see the difference every time the I go to the airport. The difference is clear. Right? I'm still irritated that I have to take off my shoes and my belt to go <laughs> into the airport. Yeah. That, that still irritates the heck out of me, and it's 20 years later. Yeah. You know. Um, and that's just the beginning of it. Yeah, and it also, you know, anyway. we could get into racial profiling. We could get into all of that, but, but yeah. So there you go. A little bit of a different Dark Poutine episode. Um, yeah, but I felt like this is the 20th anniversary. The whole Afghanistan uh, pullout is happening. 
the Taliban are right back where they were 20 years ago. Um, I just thought it was really relevant for us to be talking about this. Are there still people in Guantanamo Bay? Yep. There's another thing. Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo Bay, all of this stuff yeah. from September the 11th. You want to watch a really great documentary about uh, the torture and awful things that happened in uh, Abu Ghraib. Uh, watch Standard Operating Procedure by Errol Morris. Yeah, it I is fantastic. But, you know, let's, uh, on a positive note, mm -hmm. right, I think geopolitically they won, but I think in the hearts of thinking normal human beings, terrorists will never win. No. Right? I don't have anything in my heart against Muslims. No. I, I, against people that use the Muslim religion to be terrorists. People yes. use the Christian religion to yeah, be. Yeah, right. And, yeah. and they, these guys should have been searched out. But, you know, I think, you know, it does, I don't think it's changed unless you're like a non-thinking human being, right? Because mm -hmm. <laughs> there are a lot out there. Well, I don't think it changed everybody people. has their biases, but... Yeah, but some are just some wrong. Some more than others. <laughs> some are just wrong. Okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah, this is a, this was a tough episode, and I knew it would raise some interesting ires within you. Mm. So I think that's why I wanted to approach it too, because I knew you'd have some. Just good... get me worked up. <laughs> well, you know, your responses are real, and they are uh, they are genuine, um, yeah, and heartfelt. So, yeah. Well, let's move on. Yes. How about that? Let's listen to some voicemails. Let's move on from a post 9-11 world. This one looks like it comes to us from somebody in Manitoba. Manawawa. Manawawa. Hi, Mike and Matt. My name is Cheryl Peterson. I'm calling from Brandon, Manitoba. Um, I just want to say thanks for the amazing podcast. I homeschool my two boys. They are teenagers now. However, we have used your podcast for well over a year to dig deep into not only our criminal system, but mental health issues and, and just all kinds of things that the rabbit hole that has sent us down. So I really want to say thank you for all the hard work and the wonderful way that you do present the stories. Um, and you often leave questions that we ponder about in a good way um, that encourages my kids to to look further into how Canada deals with things. So I just wanted to say thank you very much. You're doing a great job and keep it up. Oh, and as far as my job goes, not only do I homeschool my two boys, I'm a dog groomer. So it's a little different if you ever want to use that towards someone else. All right, have a good one. Oh, she made it easy on me. I didn't have to think of a place or a job. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, thanks, Cheryl. That's really great that that makes me a, a little frightened that somebody is using <laughs> research for, to, to homeschool their we kids. We are the school curriculum. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I've heard that a couple of times that my stuff has been used in classrooms. And, Pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, I'm going to donate my body to science when I'm gone. Really? Yeah. So I can be a school curriculum. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I, I've i always said, put me out with the trash or fire <laughs> me in the oven and burn me up. Want, I want to be cremated and sprinkled all over the world. Right. I haven't traveled all over the world yet, so I would like that we to We can happen. in the afterlife. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> I don't think I've been to Brandon, Manitoba. Hey, Mike and Matt. 
this is Jordan from uh, Moncton, New Brunswick. I'm just listening to your most recent podcast. And uh, this is my second time calling in and leaving a voicemail. My first one, I was really nervous too. It took me a long time to do it. Um, but uh, what they say is true. After you do it once, it gets easier. Um, anyways, I was just listening to your most recent podcast and I was listening to a voicemail about somebody who knew somebody who knew a serial killer. And uh, I realized that I kind of fell in that category too. My old manager at one of my former jobs was picking her husband up late one night in the Moncton Industrial Park when Alan Legere, um, you guys actually covered an episode on him, when uh, Alan Legere was running, um, was on the run in Moncton, New Brunswick. She was picking her husband up and uh, he touched the hood of her car in the Industrial Park parking lot as he was running by. And she had her baby in the back seat, her baby daughter, and she didn't realize until afterwards when the RCMP pulled into the parking lot and the helicopters and whatnot, what had, uh, what could have just happened to her and how close she was to something like that. So yeah, it really is kind of crazy uh, that we can be that close to these situations and not realize how close we are until after. And I guess it kind of goes to show how like, blessed and protected we are in this world um for the most part anyways uh yeah this has gotten kind of long and rambly now but uh anyways take a shit in your hat guys talk to you later bye uh wow uh <laughs> holy smokes yeah so alan legier we covered in episodes 18 and 19 and that's a pretty close call with a serial killer <laughs> That is like the closest call that I've heard yet. Wow. Um, actually, no. My friend Pete had a close call with Clifford Olson. Have I ever told you this story? I don't think so. I think I told it on the show, but uh, my friend Pete uh, was a young ruffian, let's just say, and he, he was a troubled teen and uh, was approached by a guy who said, I have some work for you. If you want to come and do some work for me, um, just come on with me and hop in my car and we'll go to the work site. And so my friend Pete followed along and put his hand on the door handle and realized something was really, really wrong. Did not get in the car and just ran off. Later turned out that was Clifford Olson who had lured him to the car. Wow. Yeah. So... That's that's probably the closest call don't, I've had don't get in the car with a friend. Strange. Don't get in the car, car with Clifford Olson, number mm -hmm. one. But Alan Legier, he was a pretty nasty character. Uh, if you don't know about him, go back and listen to episodes 18 and 19. But wow, thank you for that voicemail. Whoa. Oh, someone from London, not the one overseas. Okay, so this will be, you can handle this one. Okay. Hello, Mike and Matt. This is Stephen. Um, I hail from London, not the one overseas, but the one in Ontario near Matt's hometown of Strath, Vegas. Anyways, I've been a long time listener. I've listened for about two years and just love listening to your podcast. Usually I'm listening to it while I'm cleaning outside, cleaning the pool in the summer or doing snow removal in the winter. Anyways, keep up the good work, guys. And Matt, I love to see 
pictures of Steve. I love that bulldog. Um, we have one across the street named Romeo. Looks just like Steve, acts like Steve, reminds me of your dog, Steve. Anyways, keep up the good work, guys. I love listening to you guys. I especially, Mike, love your um, your episodes around Remembrance Day as being a former member of the Canadian Armed Forces myself and a fourth generation. Um, you know, they're great to listen to. Anyways, keep up the good work, guys, and uh, take a poop in your pook. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Well, thank you, Stephen. Uh, thank you. And thank you for your service. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Matthew, he was talking about Strathvegas. You're, Strathvegas. Yes. You're, you're We're going to be doing an episode about Strathvegas next week. Yes, which Matthew is uh, the writer of. I wrote my first one, Boys and Girls. Yeah. Mike is editing it. And, um, yeah, so we're going to do a, a, a show on something that happened in my hometown. So, yeah, little little preview. Thank you so much for that, for that call, by the way. And um, I just want to say something. Can I say this? No, no. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Just previously, I was talking all pissy about the wars that were being thrown. Mm-hmm. I have a rule in my life. Yeah, love the soldier, hate the war. Yeah, right. So, um, thank you for your service yeah. and all of that. And when I'm being pissed off about the reasons for going into war. That I'm never pissed off at the men and women that we send there. That serve, yeah. I mean, uh, my birth family, both sides of my birth family are are military. My, my grandfather was at Dieppe. Yeah. Right? My so. adoptive family as yeah, well. So. so thank you for that. And it's nice to hear somebody in London. Right? It is. There you go. Uh, next up, let's listen to this one. Hey, my name's Nadia. I'm calling from Edmonton, Alberta. I just wanted to say I love the show and I've been a long-time listener. Matthew, I hope you enjoy your upcoming visit to Edmonton. If you're into scary stories, I definitely recommend the Edmonton Ghost Tour, specifically the U of A History and Haunted Hike. It's awesome. Mike, I've pre-ordered your book and look forward to reading it in my book club as soon as it comes out. Keep doing what you're doing and go take yet another shit in your hat. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> well, thank you so much. What thank a nice you. voicemail. Edmonton's like three weekends away. Are you excited? I am actually because my, my aunt and uncle moved there and I haven't seen them for a while. And I've never been to Edmonton and it's, and my cousin lives there with her kids and rugby. It's going to be great. I'm kind of getting excited to go to Rugby Sevens on... Uh, Boom. Yeah, it could be a good time. We had a good time the last with, time. So. With my stepfather. Yeah, with your stepfather. He's coming, yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess if you're in a BC place, what what day is it going to be? Uh, 18th and 19th. Yeah, so if you're in BC place on the 18th and 19th, maybe uh, maybe you'll see us. Matthew and Mike. Jason Momoa was there last time. Jason Momoa was there last time. I have Jason Momoa stories. Do you? Yeah, my friend worked on why, a show. Why did you touch your inner thigh when you said that? I was scratching. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not because I like Jace Momoa. <laughs> Although he does look good without a shirt on. If you had to, you, you know. Yeah. Yeah, Momoa. Why not? Yep. Yeah. You'd be a hoa for Momoa. <laughs> <laughs> I just look at him and I think about uh, Game of Thrones and that nasty character he played on Game yeah. of Thrones and, and the way he was. I just uh, said, yeah, like I've ever seen Game of Thrones. I oh, yeah. I'm just shaking my head. Yeah, it was, uh, 
He was not a kind man. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I have Jason Momoa stories that I'm not going to tell now. Okay. But, yeah. Anything I'd like to hear? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, don't bother them. No, it's not really that interesting. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, well, you know what? Let's do another one. What do you think? Yes. Make it a fiver. A fiver. Easy fiver, eh? Easy fiver. Yeah, we're doing five of them this week, eh? <laughs> we did five voicemails on that old dark poutine, eh? It was like I'm from Ontario all of a sudden, eh? I'm just like... I know people that actually speak like I that. know you do. <laughs> Where are you too? <laughs> oh, my. Anyway, so let's listen to this one. Hi, Mike and Matthew. I'm um, just going to say I love the show, and I just wanted to call and say thank you for the reference for the Zolas. I absolutely love um, Ancient Mars. The the song and that whole record just is on point. I know it was like a thousand episodes ago, but I just had to call and tell you, like, it's one of the favorite things that comes up on my podcast. Um, I guess I should probably say my name's Alicia. I live in Fort Collins, Colorado, and have been listening to your podcast for ages and ages, but like legit just like went back and listened to like, I think one through 100. And I think it was like 80 something that you referenced the ancient, the Zillas and I was just like, Yes. So, anyway, this is a long ranting um, message, but thank you so much for that recommendation because, yeah, that band is friggin' awesome, and I hope you all are doing well. All right. Have a good night. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> well, thank you for calling. Thank you. You have a good radio voice. Yeah. Um the Zolas, uh, Ancient Mars, the song about uh, Elisa Lam. I don't know that song. Ah. Was that pre-me? It was pre-Matthew. PM stands yeah. for pre-Matthew. Yeah, PM. But uh, yeah, this we're AM now, after, after Matthew. Matthew. <laughs> or it should be DM during Matthew. Because <laughs> not, it's not after. No, it's not it's quite after you. during. Don't kill me off yet, big boy. Well, no, I wouldn't kill you off anyway. Everybody else just kills themselves off is what happens. <laughs> I guess I'm hard to work with. Am I hard to work with? Not at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. I'm like, it's like, I don't even think of this as work, by the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's my day job. So. Yeah. But I find it just highly enjoyable and it's a good, it's a good reason to get together with my friend on a Sunday afternoon. There you go. That's, yeah. it's exactly the way I look at it too. So that's it for voicemails. If you want to, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 327 P-T-N. Exactly. Uh, and if your call stands out, we might play it on the show. And the best calls are usually the ones that people practice first. Uh, so if you need, if you feel a little nervous, because of course you're going to feel nervous. You're talking to two clowns that you've never talked to before for some weird reason. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, maybe practice a little first and uh, give us a ringy dingy. One ringy dingy. <laughs> practice in front of the mirror. In front? No, don't do that. 
I don't. I, I can't practice in front of the mirror because then I start to pick myself apart. I have a little bit of body dysmorphia, so uh, let's just say I am not happy with uh, the way I look. You know, the only part of your body you can look in the mirror is your own tongue. Right. Yeah. Have you tried it? No, I don't want to try that. Give it a go. No, thanks. I don't need to lick my mirror. <laughs> oh, go lick my. your mirror. Go lick your mirror, Matthew. <laughs> uh, I guess it's time for us to do to have a look at some Patreon. Oh, yeah. Patreon. Let's see if anybody gave us some love on Patreon this week. Um, I noticed that ever since Patreon began charging um, GST and VAT, our numbers have been dropping <laughs> pretty consistently. So... Um, it's not because I don't think we're providing a good product. What I think is happening is people are realizing, hey, wait a minute. Now they're charging me more for this whole business. And it kind of sucks for people. Mm -hmm. And I wish it didn't, but it does. Don't make that stop you, dear listeners. Dear listeners. So first up, we have from Bluffton, Ohio, Christina Henson. Christina Henson from Bluffton, Ohio. You know, what's Ohio? What's high in the middle and round on both ends? Ohio. Aww. Right? That's that old joke. I'm pretty sure that Christina has heard that living in Ohio and all. I've never heard that before. What does Christina do there in Ohio, Matthew? Do you say she's in Bluffton? Bluffton, Ohio. Bluffton. I think she's a professional bluffer. She's a bluffer? Yeah. Okay. So if you have to call in sick to work, she'll do it for you. Oh, hi, so-and-so is sick because... Um, See, you're bad at it. She's really good at it. Because the moon she, she fell out of the sky. She wouldn't say, um, there. She'd have them completely engaged. Matthew can't be to work today because a satellite fell out of the sky and hit um, See? his you, car. You, you, so you, I you ummed again. again. Yeah. No, she doesn't um. Well, good. <laughs> Everybody needs a bluffer. Thank you. And I'm glad it wasn't a fluffer because that's a whole different thing. Um, next up, we have from Guelph, Ontario, where my dad went to veterinary of college. Of course he did. That's where everybody goes to veterinary college in Canada. Hillary Rolston. Hello, Hillary. And what does Hillary do there in Guelph besides work at the veterinary college and disimpact cattle? I think she's a leader in 4-H club. Uh, in the 4-H club? Yeah. So well, to, Guelph nice. to me is like this really cool little town. It's actually quite beautiful. Have you ever it, been to Guelph? I have not. Yeah. And it has good university. Mm -hmm. And then also like a lot of farming and stuff like that. And I'm not making fun of 4-H. My mother was in 4-H. I'll help you know. Right. But I think she's a 4-H leader. Is, does 4-H still exist? Yes, it does. My <laughs> niece, Carly... Does 4-H. Either that or she's a veterinarian. Hmm. Maybe she's a veterinarian and a 4-H leader because it's not really a full-time job, is it? A veterinarian isn't full-time? No, the 4-H. Oh, leader. okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. So I think she's a vet. Good. Yeah, well, veterinarians are, is a, is a, it's actually a much maligned profession. People say, I had to pay so much blah, blah, blah money for X, Y, and Z. Yeah, because animals, well, you can get insurance for them now, but. It costs money to do things. I should have been a vet. Well, yeah. Too late now. Oh, well. Veterinary uh, medicine is interesting. Dad used to take me to the hospital. We used to have a great time. He showed me lots of things. Next up, we have from 
Port Coquitlam, home of Robert Picton. Poco. Margot Montanian. Hello, Margot. Yeah, and what does Margot do there in Port Coquitlam? I actually know what Margot does, but I can't remember. Oh, no. So you actually know Margot. Well, Margot's uh, a yumberyarder. A, a famous yumberyarder. Yep. And so... Uh, I think she's uh, one of the co-presidents of the Steve fan club. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. So... What does what does the Steve I didn't fan realize, club do? I didn't realize Margo was in Poco. Margo was in Poco. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. So uh, what does uh, what does the Steve fan club do besides worship your dog? Just say nice things about Steve. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's I nice. say nice things about Steve too. You do. I you, do. You're a member of the club. I love Steve. Hi, Margo. Thank you. Next, from a place we're unsure of, Cindy Sharp. Cindy Sharp. Cindy Sharp is from Peggy's Cove. Oh, from Peggy's Cove in Nova Scotia. I wonder where you came up with that. You have it on your shirt right now. I do now. have it on my shirt right now. <laughs> but uh, Peggy's Cove is beautiful. If you visit, don't stand on the Black Rocks. Yeah, we had this conversation yeah. once before. But you have to remind people over okay, and over again. over and over. Yeah, it is one of those things that it, it may be boring, but it also will keep you safe. Do not stand on the Black Rocks. And what does Peggy... What does, Peggy, what does Cindy Sharp do there in Peggy's Cove? She reminds people not to stand on the Black Rocks. Oh no! Yeah. I think she does something with lobster, lobster fishery. No, that she's she's like she stands there with the blowhorn. <laughs> with the <laughs> don't step on the Black Rocks, you no, mofos. No, no, buddy, get off the Black Rocks, bloody tourists. What are you silly or something? <laughs> yeah, that's you call her Peggy. That's funny. Peggy at Cindy's Cove. But I know it's Cindy at Peggy's Cove. Next we have Jane Adams. And Jane is from Great Doddington in the UK. Great Doddington. I have no idea where Great Doddington is. You don't? No. Wow. That's unusual for you. Usually, uh, you know, all of the places in the United Kingdom. Where's Great Doddington? Well, let's look it up. Mike's typing. Great Donington <laughs> is uh, north of London and east of Cambridge. Okay. Yep. Sort of between Cambridge and Northampton. Okay. Yep. So there you go. Now you know. What's that area like? Do you know? It looks rural. Yeah, it's rural. It's Neat. beautiful. All of the UK is sort of a manicured rural, except for the cities, but countryside's always beautiful. It's like halfway between Birmingham and London. Birmingham. <laughs> Birmingham. I'm Ozzy Osbourne, and I'm from Birmingham. <laughs> Great Doddingham. <laughs> Great Doddington. But anyway. Uh, Doddington. Did we say what she does there? No. What does? She, what do you think she does in Great Doddington? I think she's a pointillist painter. What on earth is a pointillist painter? He said, actually knowing the answer. You know what pointillism is? Yes. Well, she's a pointillist. Well, there you go. Can you explain pointillism to the listeners, Matthew? Google it. Okay. <laughs> You're mean, <laughs> making the listeners do work. Well, I'm sure her pointillism is very beautiful. I'm sure it is as well in yeah. Great Dottingham. And or is it Dockington? Doddington. Doddington. Yeah. How, how did I never hear of that place? Well. It's amazing. Well, thank you so much. Really close to Northampton. Thank you. Bedford. Min Milton Keys. Milton Keynes. Yeah, that's it. Oh, she's near Milton Keynes. Yes. 
and with, Kettering. With a small, oh, Kettering. Okay, I know, I know, okay. I know those places. There you go. Milton, you just maybe Milton, blinked and missed it. Milton Keynes has a concrete cows. It's a planned town. Ah. Yeah. Well, the um, in Great Doddington, the population there uh, as of 2011 is 1,123 That's people. That's cool. That's really neat. Nice I, little village. Yeah. I'd love to live yeah, in no, a it's, uh, English yeah. village. Oh, God, I miss the UK so much some days. Yeah. I have never been. I've I been just, in Heathrow Airport, but I have never been miss it, miss it. elsewhere. Anyway, they probably wouldn't let me in anyway. I'm a bad apple. I do want to go there. I would love us to go there and have like a meetup in the UK. We will. At some point. We were thinking about going to the UK Crime Con, but that is not going to happen because... All the covid shit. Badness is going on. Mm. Badness. Uh, right. And that's it for Patreon. So I guess now is time to move on to our donut money donations. And it looks like we did get one. And this one is from Auckland, New Zealand. Hmm. I wonder if he knows Murray from Flight of the Concords. I've never seen that program. Oh my goodness. You need to watch it. You, you would really like it. So this person's name is Mark Cross. And Mark Cross says, give up donuts. Vegan pies are better for you, though they could do with a bit of meat. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Well, that is really funny. Thank you, Mark Cross, um, for your kind donation. And what do you think Mark does? I think Mark is a graphic designer. You think he's a graphic designer? Yeah. Well, you might be actually on the right track because oh, Mark... Really? gave us his website and it's markcross.nu. Okay. He's a painter. Oh, he see. does beautiful paintings. That's a painting? Uh, I do believe. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, let's You know, see. everyone I know from Auckland? Yep. Is like uh, Mark, I seriously I didn't I didn't see that you you sent your your address. Everyone I know from Auckland is creative in the creative field somewhere. So that's really funny. Yeah, his stuff that's is beautiful. beautiful. So it's amazing. Please check out markcross.nu and have a look at some of his prints and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He does landscapes, figure painting, still life, and uh, all those other kind of things. Bovine Waterway. Wow. Coastal look at that. Cacophony. Beautiful. Oh, I wanted to do a painting of Steve for me now. Well, maybe you can... Uh, Maybe you can commission him to do a painting of Steve. You are commissioned and sanctioned and allowed <laughs> to do a painting of Steve. Of Steve, yes. Yes, I'm sure it will cost you money. <laughs> no, he's too good to be free. <laughs> yeah, you exactly. Know what I mean? His stuff is really, really <laughs> yeah, it's nice. really proper. So thank you, Mark, for... Uh, your donut money donation Thank or you. your vegan pie donation. I don't know if you actually want us to eat vegan, but that I thought that was funny because I'm reading it and I think, oh, no. You know what we should vegan. do next week? I'll, I'll buy vegan pies and bring them and we'll take pictures. That could be fun. Okay. All right. And that is it for this week's episode. Thank you to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for being so kind and generous we really appreciate your donations and it helps to keep the show going. If you want to become a patron of Dark Poutine, you can do so at patreon.com slash Dark Poutine. 
For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money just like markcross.nu did <laughs> at PayPal at, via PayPal using our email address, darkteampodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. My book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, available for pre-order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of our website, check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>